Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 22 to 35, so we'll be looking at this morning. <clears throat> Title of the message, as you see there in your worship guide, is The Agony of Our Salvation. Well, I'm going to be discussing a topic this morning that I am very passionate about. Uh, it's not something that I've preached on much uh, for a couple reasons. One is I don't believe in hobby horse preaching. Uh, I'm not going to get up here and just talk about whatever I want to talk about. And believe me, there's a lot of things I would like to talk about, right? But that's not uh, what, what's going to happen here. At Livingstone, we want to be a church that says what the text says. Right? We want to get into the Word, we want to go through the Word, and we want to let the text drive what is communicated up here. Again, doesn't mean we don't have opinions, uh, but we're not trying to read ourselves or read our own ideas into the text. But we want, again, we want to let the text drive what is communicated, what is believed, and what is embraced. <clears throat> uh, when I was in college, uh, as, a, as a new Christian, I, hadn't, I was... 19, uh, had never really read the Bible before, uh, went to, you know, I like got confirmed and I was in Sunday school and all that stuff, but I'd never really read the Bible, didn't really know like much about the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And as a new Christian, I remember reading the Old Testament and just being totally struck with how sovereign God was, like how sovereign he was over the affairs of Israel and just how much he cared for his people and how in control he was of all things. I uh, was involved in a campus ministry and went to a church that um, may have recognized those things, but probably didn't affirm them, maybe as much as uh, some others might. And, uh, you know, kind of as a result of, of being a part of that ministry then, uh, Lindsay and I went to, went to China in 2003, um, did a ton of evangelism, uh, saw God do some amazing things, one of my best friends uh, named Michael, uh, who came to know the Lord that year, is still serving the Lord, uh, is working uh, with house churches there. Uh, Wendy, a girl who Lindsay got to work with, uh, is, is in, is in full-time ministry and has served in, in other countries. And it's just a, it's a great joy to, to see that, to see God's faithfulness and how he has worked. But at that point, for us, it really felt like a lot was riding on us, Right? Like, how faithful could we be? How hard could we work? And the burden to reach the lost felt like it just really rested so much upon our efforts. That year, um, it, we, so we went there in 2003. We were there until the fall of, or until about the summer of 2004. In um, January of 2004, we vacationed in Thailand uh, and we went to a place called PP Island, and uh, was an interesting time, um, to say the least. <laughs> Beautiful, but crazy as well. Um, so that was January of 2004. December 26th of 2004, you might remember there was an earthquake that rocked the Indian Ocean and a tsunami uh, that devastated Indonesia. 228,000 deaths. Uh, thinking about passage from last week about the people coming to Jesus and saying, what about all these things that happen? You know, he says, unless you repent, you will like also likewise perish. You're talking about a crazy event, right? Like, what about this, Jesus, right? 
228,000 people. There were up to 4,000 deaths on PP Island, where we had been almost a year ago to the day of when the tsunami happened, which is pretty crazy to think about. Came back to the States. Uh, we were back in the States when the tsunami happened. And I remember sitting down at dinner, having a conversation with a friend and saying, God had nothing to do with that tsunami. Was having a lot of debates with my brother-in-law around that time about this topic of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Eventually I listened to a sermon by Pastor Matt Chandler that helped me to help to bring some clarity for me on this issue. Uh, as he talked about God's will as it relates to things, kind of the, this idea of, of two wills in God, a complicated topic I'm not going to get into right now, but we are going to see that, that idea a little bit later in our passage. And the Lord really used all of those things to help me embrace the mystery regarding the things that I couldn't seem to reconcile and to learn to be able to hold these things in tension. And I share this because so many people struggle with this issue, balancing this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Many of you, I know, have struggled with these questions, and you may currently be wrestling with these things. And I really think this is something that's so important. These are life-changing, life-altering truths that we need to be able to get a handle on. Uh, for me talking about being a life-altering truth. Um, when I was in seminary, we, I, we were in China. It was my, the second seminary class I ever took. It was in January of 2009. It was with Dr. Mark Futado, who uh, some of these guys have had in, their, in some of their classes, one of the Hebrew professors at, at RTS. And I went into that class totally unsure about if I was going to pursue a degree. I always said I would never go to seminary. I said I would never be a pastor. I said I would never be a church planter. Don't ever say, don't ever tell God you're not going to do something. <laughs> but I went into this seminary class and I, and I told Lindsay, I, I had to leave and fly to another city for a week. I said, I really feel like this is like the week, like I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord. Like if he wants me to do this, I'm asking him to show me clearly like in this week, whether I should do this or not. And it was probably on like the third day or something, uh, just in the middle of, a, of the lecture, Dr. Futado just goes on this like 30 minute kind of mini rant on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, you know, from a solidly reformed perspective that was just so winsome. And I was like, yes, like, this is the place I want to study. Like, like, he didn't get up there and say, like, here's how it is. I have all the answers, but, you know, talked about it in a way that was like, I really want to like dig in and, and understand these things more. And so really, like that was like, that's like a huge part of the reason why I'm here right now. Like it's crazy to just think back on how the Lord used that in my life. So again, I think these, the implications of, of where we land on this issue are so important. And as we wrestle with these questions, the solution is not just to throw our hands up and say, well, I can't figure this out. So I'm just going to like land over here. Or I'm going to land over here and I'm not going to like deal with the, what's uncomfortable. I'm not going to deal with the tension. But I wanna to submit to you that being uncomfortable in our theology is a good thing. Being uncomfortable and, and sitting in some of these tensions and wrestling with these things is a really good thing. I think being in this place of kind of having to wrestle through these things, this, is, this has been true for every generation of God's people. And 
I think in light of 2020, right, in light of the challenges that we've had this year, this is a good thing for us to be able to, to wrestle with some of these things. So as we wrap up this year, I want to encourage us, let us not be so quick to be done with 2020 and to like forget that it ever happened. Maybe the Lord still has some things for us to learn. I think if we really slow down and take a good long look in the mirror, we will see that our tendency is to run from hard things. Our tendency is not to embrace the suffering that we have been told is a part of the package of being a disciple of Jesus. And for that, we need to both repent and learn to trust and embrace the trials and the hardships that the Lord is seeking to use for our growth and grace. Well, we've seen this theme of, of suffering and trials and hardships repeated since, specifically since Luke 9.51, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. We'll see it again specifically in a couple weeks, that there is a cost to be counted if we are to follow Jesus. So let us embrace that fact while we trust in our sovereign God and in his good plan. It's kind of a long introduction, but let's go to our passage this morning and see what our Lord Jesus has to say to us about the agony of our salvation. Luke 13, 22 to 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would open up your word this morning to us. Open up the truths of what we see here. 
help us to embrace these truths, help us to embrace these mysteries, help us to understand these things that we wrestle with so often as it relates to your sovereignty and our responsibility. Help us to be changed by your word and by the truths that we see here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the context here, again, is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. We're in this big section from Luke 9:51 until chapter 19 as he's journeying to Jerusalem. And the cross is squarely in his sights, just as he's been telling his disciples all the way along. So as we read it, we must keep that in view. Kind of a main idea or a thesis statement that I have here is, The cross must always be in view as the place where these seemingly irreconcilable truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet and ultimately make sense. And again, that ultimately making sense for us might not be on this side of eternity. So we're looking at the agony of our salvation this morning from two perspectives. The first perspective is what part do we play And the second part is, what part does Jesus play? So what part do we play in our salvation? What part does Jesus play? And we'll see both of these questions addressed in each of our two sections here. First section, if you're taking notes, if you want a a title for this section, is the agony of narrow door entry and the joy of broad kingdom entry. The agony of narrow door entry and the joy of broad kingdom entry. The scene here in verse 22, Jesus is on his way. He's he's been traveling through Galilee. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's been going through these towns and villages. He's teaching, and he's journeying toward Jerusalem. And we see here in verse 23 a common picture that we've seen over and over. Someone approaches Jesus with a question. See that in verse 23, someone comes up to him and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know what motivated the question from this individual. Uh, Perhaps they have been following Jesus for a while. Maybe they were around uh, during this previous section where Jesus uh, had been teaching about the kingdom of, of heaven being like a mustard seed or being like leaven. It's this slow working agent uh, that's not always, not always visible and not always obvious. So maybe that prompted this question. Uh, that might be the reason why Luke placed these two sections together. So the question is, if the kingdom of God is like this little bit of yeast that it's, that's going to work its way through 50 pounds of flour... Is it only going to be a few then who get in? Now, this question might come from genuine curiosity uh, from this individual, might come from a place of cynicism. Uh, Maybe this is a self-righteous Jew who thinks that he's in and he wants the rest rest who get in to be the few that he thinks are just like him, right? So maybe he's he's trying to puff himself up and ask Jesus if there's only a few who are going to be saved. So how does Jesus answer him then? Well, in, in classic Jesus fashion, of course, right? He does not give him a yes or no answer. Instead, he addresses the hearers of this question with a direct challenge, and then he tells them a parable. First, the direct challenge in verse 24. 
Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There is nothing inconsistent here with anything else that Jesus has taught. Love your enemies. Build your house upon the rock. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Go and show mercy like the good Samaritan. Ask, seek, knock. Don't build bigger barns and tell your soul to chill out and relax. Seek God's kingdom first and do not be anxious about your life. Be ready for the master's return. Repent or perish. There is no such thing. If you look at this list, you can see there is no such thing as passive Christian discipleship. These are all active things. Jesus calling us to action in all of these things. He doesn't say, sit around and just wait to see what God does. So what does it mean here to strive to enter through the narrow door? Well, let's look first at a couple other places where we see this word strive used in the New Testament. It's used seven times total. Uh, This is the only place that it's translated as strive. So what is the idea here with this word? Paul to Timothy in some very familiar words, 1 Timothy 6, tells Timothy to fight. That's the same word here for strive. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's not a passive idea, fighting the good fight of faith. Paul's summary then in his of summary of his life and ministry in the last letter he wrote just before he died, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought, same word, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, okay, so that's idea, that idea of running the race, Another interesting connection is in Hebrews chapter 12, um, actually the noun form of this verb, so the verb to strive in the noun form in Hebrews 12 is the word race. So we're to run this race with perseverance that is is set out for us. So it's this this race is striving, right? It's it's that idea of of this striving. In Colossians, it's a couple of my favorite verses. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Talking about Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling, okay, same word as strive there, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So you see that awesome mix there of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? It's, it's Jesus who's working in Paul, but Paul is struggling with all the energy that he gets from Christ. Colossians 4, you want to be challenged in your prayer life. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling. Some translations translate that word in that in there as wrestling, right? The NIV says wrestling in prayer. So Epaphras is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. For, for what? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Okay, this, is, this is effort, right? This is striving. He's, he's wrestling before the Lord so that they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I think you get the picture of what's being communicated here. 
This is one of those fun Greek words that our English word actually sounds like. The Greek word is agonizomai. Can you guess what the word is? Agonize, right? That's what this word strive is, and that's where we get our word agonize. Hendrickson, uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary says that the imagery here is one of a wrestling ring. He talks about exerting oneself to the fullest and straining every nerve. And I played all kinds of sports growing up. Uh, I played football. I played basketball as a kid, did, did baseball, all kinds of things. I lifted weights. I knew how to work hard. I knew what exertion was until my senior year when I went out for wrestling. After a six-minute wrestling match, when you have literally been grappling with another person and straining every muscle and nerve in your body for almost six straight minutes, and you go sit down on the side afterwards, your body is just trembling. Like, there's nothing more exhausting than that. Um, And even, I'm a lot older now and not in that shape, but if I, sometimes I'll wrestle with my brother-in-law and it's like, or I've been wrestling with Cademan a little bit too. Now it's like a minute, right? A minute of that and I'm just toast. But that's this picture here. It's this, you know, you're fighting for your life, right? Like you're straining every single muscle in your body. That's the picture here of agonizing, of striving to enter that narrow door. And that's what Jesus is communicating. So this isn't a picture of someone just taking some nice stroll through the park. The road is hard and the door to enter is narrow. I think it also reinforces the the imagery from our passage last week, where Jesus is saying, don't concentrate on the fate of others who have perished under unfortunate circumstances. You repent or you will also perish. Get right with God now. Don't just sit around and wait for the door to be opened to you. As we think about this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, clearly this is very heavy on the man's responsibility side, right? This is Jesus telling us to do something here. Strive with all your energy to enter in to through the narrow door. But again, we have to understand this properly. Daryl Bach explains it very helpfully in his commentary. He says, the idea is not to work one's way to God, but to labor hard at listening and responding to his message. The concept is very much like passages in Proverbs that exhort one to incline the ear to wisdom and pursue it like riches. Well, so what about those then in the second half of verse 24 who are seeking to enter but are unable? Who is to blame for their inability to enter? Is it God's fault or is it their own? We'll come back to this question in a bit. But now let's look at Jesus' parable in verses 25 to 30. There are parallels here with several other passages in the Gospels. And the general message here is consistent. There's an invitation to come to the banquet and the master will open the door to those who know him. We're going to see that especially next week. We see here some clear warnings against this narrow view of the Jews that they were the only ones getting into the kingdom. Kind of see that in verses 28 to 30 here. And as he's talking about that, you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but you yourselves cast out. There's a very clear warning 
uh, to the Jews. And in this section, again, I called this the agony of narrow door entry and the joy of broad kingdom entry. So Jesus appears to answer the question, will those who are saved be few? Again, not with a yes or no answer, but by looking at it from these two angles. In a sense, yes, those who are saved will be few because the door is narrow. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. That's the passage where he's talking about him being the good shepherd. He said, my sheep hear my voice, right? Only those whom the shepherd has called will will come in and will enter. He says that very clearly. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we have that. And then there is this striving and this agonizing that is required that many do not seem to be willing to do. On the other hand, will those who are saved be few? The answer is no, because contrary to to the Jews' misconstrued ideas about who will enter the kingdom, Jesus is reminding them that people will come from all over. They they will come from north and south and east and west. Yes, Gentiles included, those dirty, filthy Gentiles, right? They will come in. They will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. They will enjoy the banquet that God has prepared for them. Now keep that picture in mind. This here is such a a consistent reinforcement of so much of the ministry that Jesus has been doing up to this point. There have been many parables that have challenged the Jews, and especially the religious leaders, about how they wrongly view those whom they consider to be on the outside. And think just specifically think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is challenging them specifically about someone who they consider to be an outsider who actually acted in the way that God is call, was calling them to act. Now for us as Gentile believers here in the 21st century, we might feel like this dynamic doesn't really apply to us. But I think there are all kinds of artificial barriers that we are tempted to erect to determine what types of people are in or out of the kingdom. And we would do well to remember that it is repentance from sin and faith alone in Christ alone that determines who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't get into the kingdom, humanly speaking, from our perspective. So let's turn our attention now to the next section where we will see the agony of a compassionate Savior and just judge. The agony of a compassionate Savior and just judge in verses 31 to 35. Now the scene here is that Jesus is approached by some Pharisees who warn him that Herod is seeking to kill him. Now the interesting question here is, are these guys really looking out for Jesus or are they just trying to get rid of him and shift the blame to Herod, right? Like we know that Some of the Pharisees have already tried to kill Jesus. They want him out of the way. We don't know for sure here. Like maybe there's a few good apples, right, among like the Pharisees. Maybe these guys really are looking out for Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us exactly. But maybe these particular Pharisees, maybe they just, they really dislike Jesus, but not enough to want him dead. Uh, But either way, Jesus' reply here in verses 32 and 33 is what is really important. He is reiterating here what he has said at other points in his ministry. That he has come with one purpose, to do his Father's will and to to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. 
And this is where we start to get some clarity on that opposite side of the coin as we look at God's sovereignty. We asked earlier about those who were seeking to enter the kingdom but were unable. The question was, who is to blame for their inability to enter? Is it God's fault or is it their own? I think John chapter 6 is so helpful in this regard. This is fitting here because the imagery here in Luke 13 uh, in the previous section was that of a banquet. We saw that last week where some would come and feast with Jesus while others who had previously ate and drank with him will be excluded. No, sorry, not last week, just this, this section we just looked at, verses 22 uh, to 30. In John chapter 6, one of Jesus' great I am statements is, I am the bread of life. Now listen to that claim and to what follows it, and notice carefully how it parallels with what we are seeing here about God's sovereignty and our salvation. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A few verses later, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. A couple things to notice here in this passage in John 6. First, Jesus has come not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. That's what he's talking about here in Luke 13, 33. His death on the cross in Jerusalem is squarely in view where he would go and suffer and die as the spotless, sinless substitute lamb in the place of sinners. That's why he was born. That's why he came down from heaven, John 6, 38. He can't perish away from Jerusalem because that's his very mission and purpose. Then we see in verse 34 and 35, the agony of our compassionate savior and just judge where he says here, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His compassion is seen in the indictment against Jerusalem for how they have rejected the prophets whom God has sent them and how they ultimately will reject him. He compares himself here to a compassionate and caring mother hen. And there's a very interesting word choice here that further gets at our question, who is to blame for their inability to enter? Is it God's fault or their own? In verse 34, the word would, where Jesus says, how often would I have gathered your children together? That word 
referring to Jesus. And the word willing at the end of that verse, where it says, you were not willing, that's the same word. It's the word for wish or will or desire. In essence, Jesus says, I wanted to gather you, but you didn't want to be gathered by me. It's the same indictment that is seen against the Jews in John chapter 5. Jesus told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse, same word here, literally it's you're not willing. You refuse, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, you're reading the scriptures, you're reading everything that's pointing right to me, and I'm standing here right in front of your face. I'm saying, come to me, right? I'm telling you, this is about me. Luke 4, right, he stands up in the synagogue and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's not this, like, mystery. Jesus isn't walking around like, I wonder if they'll figure out this connection to me. Like, he's telling them very obviously, like, the scriptures are about me. They're pointing to me. And he's saying, you're not willing. I'm telling you, it's me, and you're just, you're refusing me. You're rejecting me. So it's not Jesus that keeps people out of the kingdom. It's not his lack of compassion. But it's the unwillingness in the hearts of men and women to come to him. I want to read from J.C. Ryle's commentary, speaking of this idea here that we've been talking about. He says, let us take heed with such a passage as this before us, that we are not more systematic than Scripture. It is a serious thing to be wise above that which is written. Our salvation is holy of God. Let that never be forgotten. None but the elect shall finally be saved. He quotes John 6.44, no man can come unto Christ except the Father draw him. He goes on, but our ruin, if we are lost, will be holy of ourselves. We shall reap the fruit of our own choice. We shall find that we have lost our own souls. Linked between these two principles lies truth, which we must maintain firmly and never let go. There is doubtless deep mystery about it. Our minds are too feeble to understand it now, but we shall understand it all hereafter. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility shall appear perfectly harmonious one day. In the meantime, whatever we doubt, let us never doubt Christ's infinite willingness to save. This is our compassionate Savior And we see his heart as he laments over the rejection that he experiences from the very ones he came to save. And then the opposite side of this coin is that he is totally just in the judgment that he pronounces that their house is forsaken in verse 35. Now this might be talking about Jerusalem in general as the city or the temple in particular. Uh, Both of them would, would fall in 70 A.D., so there's probably a reference to that, their house is forsaken. And then this final sentence here in verse 35 is interesting because this is what the crowds shout on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Blessed, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now, most scholars see a dual fulfillment here, uh, probably some reference to Jesus' triumphal entry, but probably most likely he's talking about his second coming. And I think this is fitting as we've been talking about this through Advent leading up to Christmas. We've talked about the importance of looking back to the first coming of Jesus, looking to his incarnation, but also looking to his second coming and to his glorious return. And we've had this imagery here in our passage, and we'll see it particularly next week in the first half of chapter 14 of this great banquet feast. The one that was foretold back in Isaiah 25, that great picture of salvation where Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would make a feast of rich food and well-aged wine for all peoples. Isaiah said he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Remember that. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus came once, not for the first, came the first time, not as a conquering king with a sword in his hand to swallow up earthly kingdoms, but as the Lamb of God who would lay down his own life for our sins so that he might swallow up death forever that we might experience the abundance of God's glorious salvation and may feast forever with him before the throne of God. He is coming again. And this next time, it will be as a conquering king with a sword in his hand. This is not the warm and fuzzy Jesus in a manger scene, even though in reality that probably wasn't very warm and fuzzy. This is the scene that makes the words strive to enter through the narrow door really begin to make sense. Agonize. Do whatever it takes to get right with God, knowing that it is by grace and grace alone that you are enabled to come to him. I want to close by reading part of John's vision in Revelation chapter 7, which will hopefully tie a nice bow on this amazing gift of our salvation and shed some light on the question of whether it is only a few who will be saved. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 17. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Notice the imagery there, the, the parallel to Palm Sunday. Standing with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God 
and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture in Isaiah 25 that foretold the coming banquet where God would come and he would destroy death forever and he would wipe away every tear. That's this picture right here fulfilled. Not when a few people are saved, right? But when people from every tribe and tongue and nation that John can't even number are gathered around the throne and are worshiping the lamb in this banquet feast that we've been longing for, right? That we, that we long for, that we hunger for, that we wait for. This will be our reality. So in the meantime, we strive, right? We agonize, we strive to walk with the Lord. We strive to enter that narrow gate, knowing that it is him and him alone. Salvation belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. And we have to be able to live the Christian life and hold those two things in tension, right? We don't just say, well, God is sovereign. He's just going to do whatever he's going to do. So I'm just going to sit around, right? I'm just going to coast. No, we strive and we fight and we wrestle and we struggle. And guys, as we head into 2021, let's not forget the lessons we've learned these last nine months or so, right? It's been hard. It's been a challenge. But God is in control, and he's sovereign. And knowing that, we go into this new year striving, right? Struggling with all the energy that he works within us as we pray, as we read the scriptures, as we gather together and worship, as we love one another. Let us do that with the energy that he gives us and not on our own strength. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder as we see here in your word. There is a call to strive. There is a call to seek after you. But God, there's also this reminder that it is totally dependent upon you. God, that you are the one who is faithful. You are the one who keeps your promises. You are the one who gives us the strength to do the things that you call us to do. And God, I pray, who, whoever among us is, is, has been, maybe has been wrestling or has is, is just wrestled for a long time with that tension, not that all the answers get, get cleared up, not that everything is, is, is easy from here on out, but God, I pray that you would help us, help us as your people, help us as a church, to walk in this, in this mystery, to walk in this tension of, of striving in our discipleship, of putting in the, the work, the effort uh, to live the Christian life, knowing that it is you who sovereignly and graciously provides what we need. May we rest in that reality. May our souls be at rest, even when it just feels like everything around us is crazy. 
So Lord, as, as we wrap up another year, as we head into 2020 with a lot of probably excitement and expectation of, of things to come, Lord, we ask that through all of it, our eyes would be fixed firmly upon you, that you would establish the work of our hands and that you would be glorified in all, Lord, that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.